then he gave me a, a wallop on the side of the head and um, dazed me a bit and then uh, grabbed me by the arm and pulled me down the road further. And down the road, like it's pitch dark, it's, it was now about half eleven or quarter to, must have been about quarter to twelve. And um, a bus went by, which I tried to again make some sort of movement to stop it, but there was nothing like that they would notice. And um, with that, then he pulled me into a ditch and then raped me. You wouldn't hear a thing, they probably have these sneakers on them. And it was just the, the tug I was carrying bag in my hand, and just slight, very slight. I, afterwards, I thought I must have the feeling that he must have been following me, and the thoughts of that even today, it's very scary. I find it very scary now in town and crowds if people come up very close to me. I have, it leaves an awful feeling. And he was screaming, give me your fucking bag, like screaming so loud that like, I just went into complete shock and I thought my bag was still in the car. Um, I kept on screaming and he then proceeded to like get me on the ground and kick the living daylights out of me. He knocked me unconscious with the punch. So he put me in a car and he brought me to a hospital, casualty. And when we went there, he explained to the nurses and doctors how my brother and I had had a row, and my brother had broke my nose. And I was so dazed and so, I felt so ashamed that the man I loved and was married to had broken my nose, that I wouldn't disagree with him. The voices of Catherine, Betty, Fiona and Mary. Four women of different ages and different backgrounds with one thing in common. They all became the victims of crime through no fault of their own. They were going about their business when violence suddenly shattered their everyday lives. Catherine was young, vivacious, only 19, out for a drink with her friends in a local pub. She left early on her own to get home to do some baby minding. Her house was close by, and she went down the road and over the hill that she had gone many times before. This time, she felt she was being followed. On my way home, I came up to a, a cross in the road, and uh, I I would normally cross the main road, but I heard someone behind me. So I started walking slightly faster, and uh, th then I noticed the footsteps were definitely pursuing me, and they were, you know, getting faster as well. So I went to turn my head to see who it was, and um, a gloved, leather-gloved hand grabbed me from behind, and. Um, he put his hand over my mouth and blocked my my nose and my mouth and put another hand behind my back and said that he had a knife and if I moved or didn't do what he said, he would kill me, stab me. So I was more... I, at, the, at the time, I was intent on getting his hand off my nose and mouth so I could breathe and tried to think of something to do. Um... So I 
pulled his hand away from the mouth and I said nothing and he goes that's you know good or whatever just keep walking he said I'm I'm running away from the cops and I need a cover so I need you to walk with me and um, so I said I, I tried I got this strange calmness that I was just going to be able to deal with this and I believed him that that's what he wanted and um, so he, we, we took the other road and uh, again it's very badly lit but it is an estate it goes through an estate so walking down there I tried talking to him and saying uh, well can you not run this way or that way and I will not tell the police you know that you're gone wherever you're going and um, so he said no I just want you to walk a bit further down and uh, so uh, another few yards or something I stopped and said no I'm, I'm going home now and he said no you're not you just keep walking or you're dead so I said right I'll walk down as far as the end of the estate and then I'm going so we got down to the end of the estate and a car passed by where he grabbed me and pulled me into a kind of bush and put his head on my neck and he, uh, I, I pushed him away and said, what are you doing? He said, oh, it's just a cover in case anyone sees us. They think we're a couple. And so after that, um, he, he had me forcibly by the arm and he was pulling me down this dark road with absolutely no lights. And so I broke away and ran across the main road where he ran after me and there was a fence which I was holding on to so he slapped me round the head and told me to uh, to follow him or to come with him and or else again this threat with the knife so um, at this stage now I, I'm like obviously frightened but um, I, I didn't even think that what he was going to do was rape me so um we got down the road a little bit further and a few cars passed which I tried to make some movement to try and get them to stop when I think back now it was probably something insignificant like a hand going out you know trying not to let him see me um, then he pulled me into a, um, a an gateway of a very old house and uh, that's when he started to sexually assault me which I didn't understand. I understood what he was doing, and but I didn't understand why. There was a bit of a fight then. I, I started fighting him and thumping him, and I was trying to get him between the legs with my knee, and which I did do, but it didn't work. And um, I was just trying to remember any sort of tactics I've ever been told to do. So um, then he gave me a, a wallop on the side of the head, and um, dazed me a bit and then uh, grabbed me by the arm and pulled me down the road further and down the road like it's pitch dark it's, it was now about half eleven or quarter to, must have been about quarter to twelve and um, a bus went by which I tried to again make some sort of movement to stop it but there was nothing like that they would notice and um with that then he pulled me into a ditch and then raped me. But after that vicious and shattering assault, Catherine didn't panic. 
she tried to cope with the situation as best she could. He, he asked me for a cigarette and uh, I had them, I gave him the packet and the lighter and just sat there. Um, I didn't want to run or make any sudden moves in case he thought I was going to go to the police and, you know, decided then to kill me or something because, again, this threat was still there. Um, he then picked up his jacket and tied, fixed himself up a bit and he said, you can go now. And I said, it's OK, or words to that effect. And because uh, I, I thought what he was thinking was the minute I got up to go, he was going to stab me or something. So I said, well, just stay here. So he, he asked me again where the nearest town was and I showed him the road to go on. And he walked very calmly down the road and then I heard rustles in the field behind me and he had actually come off the road and ran through the field towards more and more fields for miles. So I didn't know what way he was going or what his intentions were or anything. But when it was, when I felt it was safe enough that he was like as far away as he could be from me, I gathered up my stuff and started walking back down the road towards the town. But Catherine, uh, did he know you before that, or did he know you by sight, or did he see you in the pub that night? I don't know the answer to that question. I, I certainly didn't know him, and I don't think he knew me. I had used... Um, he, he asked me my name during it, and I gave him a false name, which he didn't question or anything. He didn't know where I lived, um, anything like that. I, I, the locals in the town know him, and said that he would have been a regular, maybe, you know, around the town, but um, he was quite young, so he wouldn't have been, like, well-known in the pubs or anything like that. And I don't think he would have known me. And you were only 19 at the time? Yes. And what did you do after that, Catherine? I mean, obviously you were totally disorientated and shocked and traumatised in that. Yes, but again, that calm, calmness came over me in that I knew I had to, I had to go somewhere, I had to do something, I had to get out of that situation. And um, so I, I couldn't, looking back, my head wasn't together. I thought it was at the time because I couldn't find any of my clothes or anything and I had a jacket, a long jacket to my knees which I put on and I walked barefooted from the the place to um, to the estate that we'd passed through and I figured, I, I didn't know whether I wanted to go home or not and I, I also knew then that I was that some, like something was wrong. I was completely disorientated, really. And I went into um, the first house I, I saw, first house on the estate, and uh, I called in there, and the people of the house were actually friends of um, my parents, which I didn't know. I, w I wasn't paying attention at the time to know that. And um, 
they brought me in and gave me coffee and I think then I went into shock. They just kept giving me coffee and sugar and they were excellent. They were so helpful. They rang, they rang my parents first of all and then they asked my permission to ring the police and I said yes because <laughs> I, I didn't know what was going on anyway and I just said yes and I knew um, it was the right thing to do in that I knew he'd done wrong so the police had to be involved. Catherine's family, friends and the Garthi were very helpful to her after the traumatic encounter. She was taken back to the scene of the crime and then to the Rotunda Hospital for forensic investigation. Arrived in the Rotunda maybe about two o'clock in the morning and uh, was seen by a lady doctor there who was great. There was no... I mean, she was so professional about what she did. It was, you know, you knew you were around friends and everybody was on your side and it was, I suppose, a great boost. You know, I, d I didn't know what I was looking for at the time, but it, it was right, whatever they did. So um, after that, uh, a, a lady, Garda, came and uh, she was talking to me. She came during the hospital scene and um, she started talking to me and saying that they would do everything they could and uh, she was a very very nice lady and she put me completely at ease and um, at this stage I just wanted to get home to bed and forget about everything just go home and have a shower and clean up and um, th so they when I was finished there eventually I was told you know I could go home and all whatever they they'd handle it from there on in so then I got home at about four or five in the morning. Some people say that rape victims sometimes bring it on themselves. And indeed, in a British court recently, a judge commented that a rape victim had given the amber light because she was wearing a dressing gown. Catherine has no doubts about her encounter. Well, that's one thing I've never had to feel because from the very start, um, the, the, the first people I met after it in, in the house said, you know, it's not your fault and, you know, this, that and the other. So I never actually had time to contemplate if it was my fault or not. Um, but now, three years on or whatever, I, I now know that it is, it's a violent act it's not it's it doesn't make a difference what you're wearing what age you are what you know race you are anything you know it's just if this person is violent and he um wants power it's a power trip and um his way of getting power is to condemn or put down a female and that's the way i understand it it's you could be wearing a sack <laughs> or a mini skirt, you know, up to your waist, and it shouldn't make any difference. And there should be no reason why you can't wear what you want. You know, it, it, it's not um, a, a sexual act. It's not something that they would get turned on by a, a mini skirt or anything like that. It's beyond that. It's a violent act. 
Catherine's attacker turned out to be a local and he was arrested within hours of the rape incident. He admitted guilt, so apart from making a full statement, she was spared the ordeal of having to give evidence in court. However, she did attend at one hearing. I felt I wanted to go to one in uh, the forecourts, but I arrived and it was just a reading of um, when his case was coming up. And why I wanted to go, I don't know. <laughs> I just felt I had to see him or identify him or in my own head. But when I, when I got there, I was greeted by um, the victim support group, um, Jack Keaveney, and they were fantastic in, in that they explained to me the whole situation, what was going on in the courts, um, why he was there, you know, and where I could sit, where he couldn't see me, and this sort of protection. I was protected the whole time from him, and, you know, I could, I was free to come or go as I pleased, and that sort of thing. So, but you did actually see him? I did see him, yes. I, he, he, he was sitting across from me, whatever. I don't know whether he saw me, I think he did. Um, the whole experience of that scared me, even though I didn't have to go through the court case where other women have to go through that, you know. Um, but uh, I can only imagine what, what the people actually have to go through the courts feel. I, I know I was terrified seeing him, but I know also I had all these people on my side and everybody who was in that courtroom nearly were on my side. So that came across, you know, afterwards when I left the courtroom, you know, everybody was there for me, even though it seemed at the time everyone was there for him. He got um, 12, 12 years, six of them suspended. And the judge, it was my father who was actually in the courtroom and it was the make or break time for him because he wanted to see justice being done and he wasn't fully convinced he was going to because of other cases that had come up where they got off scot-free or just got a suspended sentence or, you know, for the same crime. And um, when the judge read out his statement, <clears throat> he said uh, that it was unprovoked and it was particularly violent and <clears throat> all of this. And he said, because of that, I'm giving you 12 years. And he said, I will suspend six of them. But if you do anything wrong when you come out, you will be straight back in for the other six with no, no appeal or whatever. So. Um, at least for the next um, three years or so, I know I can walk down the street and not bump into him or <laughs> anything like that, so. Catherine is now 22, and three years after being violently raped, she's slowly and gradually putting the strands of her young life back together with the aid of counselling. And I... Went, started to get on with my life again. You know, I don't. There's nothing wrong with me. And uh, over the next 
few months, I noticed I had started looking over my shoulder. I was overcompensating for the fact that uh, I was scared to go out, so I was going out and I was, um, you know, I didn't want people around me all the time protecting me because, you know, I was fine. <laughs> so um, then things start getting worse. I, I wouldn't go out even during the day on my own um, in case every, every man that I saw was a potential rapist. So um, I left my job. I had um, gone on the dole. Um, I was being over careful with things. Everything I did, I, was, I started to protect protect myself. I would never go out alone. I would always make sure I knew where I was going. I knew people, like people would know where I was and at what exact time this kind of behaviour just came in and it became very important to me that I, I had to know that people knew where I was so if I wasn't there then they'd know something was wrong. So then after the, I think the the hearing, the court when I went to the court before he was sentenced at that time that I was there, when I left, I um, broke down. I was, I just got really upset. I suppose a lot of emotions came into it. And um, I said that I'd like to go back to the Rape Crisis Centre and maybe give it a try because maybe I'd been wrong. And um, so I did and I, I came and I met with the counsellor and uh, since then, which is two years ago, I've been coming and together we've been working through, you know, the, the different impacts it's had. Now I'm back working and uh, I, I started back working, say, for example, six months ago and it was terrifying to have to pick up the pieces and walk in and meet strange people and all of that, travelling on buses and trains and stuff that I, I saved myself from for a year or so. And um, when I started back into the workplace, whatever, I found, OK, I can go out during the day. And with the counselling going on at the same time, I was telling my counsellor that I found it hard and I was working through that so it was getting better all the time. Um, now at the moment I'm fine for daytime and at night time it's still scary. It's I, I wouldn't, I, I just will not take the risk again. As far as I can see at the moment or where I am at the moment, I won't take that risk to walk down the road on my own. I would still consider myself pretty terrified of men in in general, like around, but um, I've learned to, to draw the line between my close friends and strangers who I, who I don't know. So I would definitely say that my f male friends are my male friends, you know, and other males are scary or <laughs> whatever. At the moment now, I'm in regular counselling and um, 
I can see improvements in myself, even to the fact of being able to walk out, or, you know, during the day on my own and not worry about everyone um, sleeping, you know, at night, stuff like that. So, I mean, it is kind of light at the end of the tunnel and I can just see it getting better from here on in. And the trauma suffered by a victim of rape is put into perspective by Joan White, counsellor at the Rape Crisis Centre. Well, initially you're dealing with shock and fear and, and, and anger and all sorts of um, kind of shock reactions. But when someone suffers such a, a life-threatening trauma as rape, um, there's a, a, often a, a kind of a shattering of personality and people really spend the time in counselling quite often rebuilding and repeating themselves together after the breakup of their sense of themselves. Having your handbag snatched may not sound as traumatic as being the victim of rape, yet it can be quite shattering and vicious in its own way, and mental scars can affect the victim long after the event itself. Betty is a widow in her middle years, and going to the shops had long been one of the pleasant highlights of her day. But then, suddenly, one afternoon, all this changed. Nice, ordinary afternoon, coming back from shopping. No worries. Looking forward to holidays in a few weeks' time. And out of the blue, never heard a thing. Just felt a slight my bag. And I could see this face where he was running backwards from me, you know, and he pulled. The face stuck in my mind all the time, but he, you know, dragged me down and got away. But some children came to my assistance and then a gentleman brought me around, but he was caught more or less immediately. Were you injured? Oh, I was, yes. And I was attending the hospital for six months. Well, I suffered. I didn't know at the time, <laughs> but it was a very badly broken shoulder. Knees cut, hands cut, black, fingers. So the usual, I was very lucky. Oh, my teeth and that, I was afraid, you know, your teeth, because little ones had to be in your mouth bleeding, but it was that I had put up my hand, you know, to protect myself and cut it. Betty's attacker was caught by the Gordi and later appeared in court, where he was sentenced to four and a half years in prison. She too had to appear in court, and this was something that brought its own anxiety. Well, there was two appearances in court. One, and it was on remand, and then the second one. Well, I was frightened about that, but the Victim Support Court Project. I phoned one day, took the phone up, I was going to do it several times, and I just did it this day. Made an appointment, met the ladies in their office, and had a cup of tea and a chat. And they put you at your ease, brought me around to the court, and there was cases going on. We listened, you know, give you an idea of what had happened. And they came with me on the court case, and they came then on the final day as well. We went back to their office and had more tea and discussed, you know, uh, nice. Can you tell me uh, what happened in the court? 
Well, I was lucky enough that I didn't have to give evidence. At the last minute, up to that I would have had, no, that was a bit scary. Afraid of who might be there, who might know. That's the main thing I would think, you know, that you would be remembered maybe after, recognised. That was the frightening part. And I actually came as near as you to the chap in the court. I found that very, very distressing. I mean, I was as near as you to him. Didn't think I would be. It's now two years since you were attacked and your handbag was taken. How do you feel now about it? Have you forgotten the whole episode? No way. No. No. I could still recall it now. As if it happened yesterday. No. But in, in what way does it affect you now? Are you a little bit scared all the time? Generally. Most of the time now I would be. You know, I... Before I'd never think twice maybe of going off even for a walk and, you know, around the road, you know, I wouldn't set off now or go places, you know, on my own at all. No. It has curtailed my lifestyle, I would say, to, well, to a certain extent. I find it very scary now in town and crowds if people come up very close to me. I have gives an awful feeling. It goes without saying that the most traumatising effect of any crime is felt by the victim. Yet, although there is a very comprehensive system for dealing with crime, the victim doesn't seem to get much consideration. However, since the Irish Association for Victim Support was set up by Derek Nally ten years ago, it has helped many victims by offering emotional support and practical help particularly with its witness support programme, as Jack Keaveney explains. It's important to point out at this stage that many of these people will never have been in a courtroom in their lives before. Indeed, very few of them have ever been in a police station before. And uh, they will um, be very fearful uh, of, of going into that place, and they see it as a very alien environment. And indeed, to quote uh, the DPP, uh, who, who spoke about the Central Criminal Court as being the nearest thing to a cattle mart that he'd seen for many a long day. Um, it, it can be an extremely intimidating place where there's a lot of people running around, a lot of people, a lot of crowd, crowds of people, uh, all of them who seem to know what they're at. And uh, you've got a, an awful lot of very scared people, and the scared people are not in the, in the dock. Uh, the scared people very often are the victims and, and their witnesses. And many victims who um, have been very intimidated, um, whether it's by the, the manner in which they've been cross-examined or whether it's as a result of sitting down uh, beside um, the friends or relatives of, of the offender. And whereas in many cases nothing is said, nothing has to be said, there is, there's a knowing smile, a sort of a, a stroke of the finger across the neck, you know, that type of, 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 of intimidation, which can be extremely upsetting and very, very effective from the point of view of making sure that the uh, victim, or indeed their witnesses, uh, won't give evidence. And, of course, as a result, uh, justice is not seen to be done. Uh, 
And we, what we do is we remove the, those, those people from those sort of situations. We have a room there whereby, uh, where they can retire to and have a cup of coffee and sit back. We won't discuss the case. We, one of the first things we explain to people is that, look, that we cannot be seen to be uh, coaching you or telling you how to give your evidence in any way. What we would be saying to people would be, look, tell it as it is. And uh, the very fact that we're, we're there and know the place and know our way around it uh, has a very calming effect on victims. And indeed, it, we would say it makes, ensures that justice is done, uh, that people uh, will go into the witness box uh, and be able to give their evidence in, in a, a sort of a clear and concise way. Most people feel that when they reach home at the end of the day, that they can leave their cares behind them. But you can become the victim of crime on your own doorstep. And that's what happened to Fiona, a young mother with a little baby. And um, I was coming home one evening from work and I had decided to drop in on my brother just to say hello and left his house at about 8 o'clock in the evening and arrived home uh, to my own house. And when I was parking the car, my 20-month-old uh, baby was in the car in the back seat and I noticed when I was reversing into the car space that this young guy had walked past. He wasn't suspicious looking at all, he was quite well dressed and with a nice haircut, nothing like you'd imagine would actually jump out and attack you. So um, I had a good look at him because I thought he was a neighbour and he went past and then I got out of the car to go to the back door to take out my baby and I just, something triggered in my head to check that this guy had gone on further and I looked back to check he had gone and there was no sign of him. Um, so at that stage I knew he must be somewhere around close by because he should have been out near the gate of the entrance of the estate. So my eyes just were flickering around looking for him desperately and the next thing I saw him behind a neighbour's car watching me between a bush and the car and he was staring at me bent down and as soon as I saw him I was at the back door and I ran away from the car to protect the baby so I knew he was going to attack me I knew by the look on him that he was going to actually run at me so I ran straight out onto the road hoping that somebody would come past because it was a quarter past eight in the evening and it's quite a busy estate so when I ran out onto the road he came running at me and grabbed me by the hair and flung me on the ground um, he was screaming at me to give him my bag, which I thought was still in the car. And I was screaming as well. I couldn't believe that I could actually scream so loud because I always had a fear that if somebody attacked me, that if you scream, nothing would come out. Well, what did he actually say to you, Fiona? He just took a roar. He was roaring at me to give him... Um, he was screaming, give me your fucking bag, like screaming so loud that, like, I just went into complete shock. And I thought my bag was still in the car. Um, I kept on screaming and he then proceeded to like get me on the ground and kick the living daylights out of me. Um, the next thing that happened was um, a car came and I was sure that it was a neighbour actually arriving to the scene and I kept on thinking in my head, it's okay, you're alright, you're going to be okay, here comes somebody. And I was also thinking in my head, you're leaving it too late. Yeah, I couldn't understand why he kept on banging my head when there was a car coming, why he wasn't running out the estate. So the actual cars came to a halt and a guy opened the car who was his accomplice 
and started screaming as well. Now, I really can't remember what he was screaming, but within a couple of seconds, the two of them had gone off and I was literally left on the middle of the road um, in a state of shock. It's not the injuries that, you know, really affect you. It's just the trauma of living through something like that that happens out of the blue. That, you know, your mind, you know, as it plays funny games with you and it, it takes you a while to get over something like that. Now, since that, well, it's only a couple of months ago yet, but since that, are you still conscious now when you park the car in the driveway or indeed park at any place? Um, I'm absolutely terrified still to this day. It's about nine weeks since it happened. Coming home in the evening time when I collect the baby from the baby minders, I'm literally going from the car to the door. I suppose this, you know, kind of going through the same event Again, I always fear that somebody's going to jump out on top of me. Um, and I presume over time that will leave. Uh, with regard to, like, kind of everyday life, it, it's got much easier than it was the first couple of weeks. But the first two or three weeks, it was particularly hard because, for me, I experienced terrible nightmares. And, you know, you, you, you feel, OK, I'm fine, I'm over it. And you have this Dutch courage that comes from nowhere. And you think, I'm, I'm God, thank God, I'm, I'm such a strong character. And then all of a sudden, you, it just all leaves you again. A victim of crime on her own doorstep. That was Fiona's story. But could you become a victim behind closed doors in your own home? Well, Mary got married when she was in her teens and gradually things went awfully wrong until she eventually got a barring order. I haven't been there myself again. I'm speaking from experience of myself and of other women I've spoken to over the years. Um, there's, it's like an unwritten law that if you get married, uh, it has to be a happy marriage. And if something goes wrong with it, women often feel it is their fault. They have failed in some way to satisfy their husband. They have failed. They're not the perfect wife, the perfect woman. And there's a huge stigma attached to being a battered wife or a beaten woman. And, like, I've heard women and men in general out in pubs or at the shops or at the bus stops saying, ah, sure, she, she must have asked for it. Like, you know, there's a lot of myths around. Or it, it couldn't be that bad, he couldn't be beating her that bad, sure, because she stays. If he was beating her that bad, she'd get out. But they don't realise where does this woman get out to? Where does she go? The fears of, say, living like myself with three children, knowing the man at any time can come home and beat you. But you have these children, more than likely, even if you're not on the poverty line, even women who have husbands in well-paid jobs, often the man controls the money. The man controls the bank account. The man controls the car. And you're left with this fear of, if I go, where do I go? Do I take my children out of their warm, comfortable home? Where do I run with them? What will I live on? Will he follow me? Who will protect me if he follows me? I mean, so you don't say anything because you're risking a lot by saying to somebody, my husband beats me, because immediately they're going to say, oh, you know what, what are you going to do about that? The onus is on you immediately. You change, you do something, you get out of your family home. Where the proper laws don't seem to be there or they're not being enforced to say this man is a criminal he has committed a crime 
punish him? Why punish the woman and the children by making them leave the home? You know, that's the, and that's the fears and the stigmas that are there in place at the moment. And that's why women stay quiet about it. Because what choice do they have? You know, a choice of leave the family home, go into a refuge, go into a, a bed and breakfast, live on the poverty line, you know, in fear, constantly in fear that he's going to follow you. And maybe the courts are going to decide he should have custody of the children because he's the stable man who stayed at home and has a nice home and a car and a job. So, I mean, this, it's a huge area with huge fears for women to try and break the silence. Well, anyway, Mary, you're five years gone from all that. And are you happy now? And are you still in love with the man who caused you all that unhappiness? No, I'm not still in love with the man. I've done a lot of work on myself I've, and my family. And I have come to realise that the love I had from, you know, it wasn't a healthy love, it wasn't a healthy relationship. And I've got, gotten over it to a certain extent. The, um, it has changed me. It has made me the person I am, the, the abuse I lived with. And it's like anything else. It's, um, I made a mistake, but the mistake was only a mistake till I was able to say, look, this is a mistake, and I learned from it. And now I can say it was an experience. And it has just made me, I think, a better person, you know, having gone through it and come out the other side and being able to help other women who are going through it. I'm, I'm f a fairly stable, happy woman this day, and I have three healthy children who I love and who aren't seriously affected by the abuse that they lived in.